This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We help people to make space for what matters and get more done. And we partner with some of the world's leading companies who share our mission to transform the world of work. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Debbie Millman. Debbie was described by Fast Company as one of the most creative people working in business, and she's the founder of the hugely influential Design Matters podcast. From 1995 to 2016, Debbie worked in leadership roles for Sterling Brands, leading influential projects for the likes of Burger King, Star Wars, 7up, and Campbell Soup. Her new book, Why Design Matters, taps into the brains of Tim Ferriss, Brené Brown, Esther Perel, and Malcolm Gladwell, amongst many others, and explores what it means to be creative and innovative in work and in life. In this episode, we talk about her pioneering work, who owns your logos, how to deal with internet pylons, and much more. This is Debbie Millman. So I'm with Debbie Millman. How are you? Hi, Graham. I'm good. It's really nice to be here with you. Yeah, well, it's just really great to, to have you on the show. And so we're going to talk a bit about um, your book, Why Design Matters. And I thought maybe the best place to start would be to mention the fact that I am talking to one of the, the OGs of podcasting, right? Like you are <laughs> like a legend in podcasting. So let's start with that because that's pretty central to the book too. So the podcast is Design Matters and you started your podcast in 2005. I did in 2005. I was, it actually started as an internet radio show. I was approached by a, a then fledgling internet radio network called Voice America, not Voice of America, which is very different, Voice America. And, and they were interested in my doing a podcast uh, for their business network. And they originally wanted me to do it on branding. Um, but I was most interested in doing it because it would give me an opportunity to do something that wasn't branding. And I had dedicated so much of my life at that point to branding and to my professional practice. And when um, I realized they weren't offering me a job, but rather offering me an opportunity to pay them to produce the podcast, I pretty much figured I could do whatever I wanted with it because that's really... <laughs> The, the lead gene for them was was a profit center. So it started very much as a vanity project. And, and it really was because I was so bad at it that the fact that they let me put it up on, on the internet was just a miracle. <laughs> but yes, February 4th, 2005, my first episode uh, aired. Over the years, obviously, like you say in the book that you then used the podcast is a really good excuse to go and talk to your heroes and interview really interesting people. Yes. Um, and you talk about the your sort of ethos of interviewing. Like, what do you think makes a good interview? I think respect is is one of the key, the key elements. I think trust is also really, really important. A certain generosity and willingness to open yourself up. For me, it is a matter of... Uh, really deep preparation to be able to allow the guests that I'm talking to to talk about whatever they want and for me to be able to converse with them about it because I'm not necessarily surprised by what they're saying in that I have a sense of 
what they've done in that area and how they've constructed the the practice that they have. So I think those are the, the three things. And is there any, out of all the interviews that you've done, is there any that stands out as being like a particular highlight, perhaps like one that was really challenging or one that just turned into something really amazing? <laughs> well, there, there, I've done nearly 500 episodes at this point. And, and so it's a little bit hard to say, oh, that was like the one. Certainly um, my episode with Richard Saul Werman, where he told me my questions were stupid and was very uh, <laughs> terse with me, was, was one of my um, most memorable. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say that it ended up being, I think, also one of my most listened to and certainly my most commented upon. Why did you think your questions were stupid? What was what was the issue? Well, you know, Richard is, is really, I have to say he's kind of a genius. I mean, he's the man that created the TED conference. And I'm not entirely sure he was familiar with the format of the show, which is basically a, a deep dive into a person's origin story to understand how they've created and designed the life that they currently have. What obstacles did they go through? What challenges did, challenges did they face? I'm not as interested in talking about somebody's successes as the process that someone took to get to that success. And Richard didn't want to talk about the past. He wanted to talk about the future. And I'm not a futurist. Right. I'm an analyst. You know? So so there was we were at a little bit of cross purposes because I was interested in understanding how he had gone from, in his own words, living in a flop house to becoming one of the most, you know, sort of revered public intellectuals of our time. And so he was very impatient with me. He's like, why are we talking about the past? I don't understand. These are stupid questions. And and I said, well, what do you want to talk about? And he goes, well, that's a good question. Let's talk about the future. <laughs> and and so we were a bit at cross purposes. Ultimately, he wrote me after the episode aired and said that, <laughs> literally, he said, at the time, he thought the interview was really terrible. But now upon listening to it, he thought it was rather good. And so that was that was an interesting uh, turn of events that I did not expect. And we're very friendly and, uh, you know, that's who he is and I'm who I am. And so we agreed to to disagree about the process. But I think ultimately we're both pleased with the result. Yeah. And then I think I just interrupted you as you were talking about another one there as well. What was the, what was the other one you're going to mention? Oh, uh, geez. What was the other one I was going to mention? Um, I mean, there's just so many interesting people that I've spoken to that it's so hard to say, you know, that was my most memorable. Certainly, you know, Richard was one of my most memorable just because it was so difficult and he was so um, terse and, and quite critical. Um, but others that I think are important to my life, certainly my interview with my now wife, <laughs> Roxanne Gay, although we were already um, in a relationship when I interviewed her, but the reason for my reaching out to her in the first place was to invite her to be a guest on the podcast. So the fact that mm. ultimately, first she said yes, then she ultimately said no, we didn't have a podcast. I kept bothering her about getting together and then actually asked her out on a date. And so then, you know, after, well, I don't know, four, five, six months together, we finally did have an interview. And and that's actually when we sort of publicly came out as a couple. It was at the On Air Fest in Brooklyn, New York. And I interviewed her. And at the time, people didn't know, like even the people at the On Air Fest didn't know that we were dating. And so there was sort of an audible gasp when we talked about being in love. <laughs> 
during the episode. Um, and so that's certainly one of my favorite for a lot of very, very poignant personal reasons. Yeah, that's definitely going to be one that you go back and, uh, and and listen to a few times. And obviously my interviews with Tim Ferriss. Tim is one of my my most extraordinary guests in so many ways. And we have, a, I think, a, a certain conversation chemistry, for lack of a better term. And he he's really helped me quite a lot with the show and... We've had, I think, really important conversations, both on his podcast, probably more on his than mine, but certainly the the conversations we've had on mine, I think, are really important too. And when you think about podcasting now, so you were one of the one of the early adopters of of being a podcaster. Now it feels like everyone's got a podcast. Mm, yes. What do you think are some of the things that you've seen change? What have you noticed has changed in in that world of podcasting? Well, certainly the awareness. I remember when I first started talking to people about it. They were like, oh, oh okay, it, they, like, is that something with your iPod? I mean, like, what, what? what? <laughs> so people didn't know. And now when I tell people, they're like, oh, you too, you and everybody else and my grandmother. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a cliche now, but I'm not doing it for that reason. And I love doing it. And it's become, you know, one of the greatest gifts of my life to be doing it. So the fact that everybody and their grandmother has one too, just means I'm in good company, I guess. I almost feel like you should go the other way, right? And so you have a period in your life where you're the only person with a podcast. And then now if you stop doing yours, you'd be the only person who didn't have a podcast. And that would be like, that would feel like the, the cool thing to do. Absolutely. I think there's some expectations that people have with podcasts that can sometimes be unrealistic. You know, the fact that they just put out a podcast and expect people to listen to it isn't always the case. And I, I really recommend that people, when people ask me, what kind of podcast should I do? I suggest that they do something that they're really passionate about, that they're never going to get bored with, mm. and that they're yeah. endlessly fascinated by. And I'm endlessly fascinated by how people construct their lives, how people manage their their challenges and trauma. And that, to me, never gets tiring. Um, I also expect that when people... Are, are, I, I tell people to expect that when they're doing a podcast, record 10 episodes, bank them, have them, and then put them out once every two weeks to establish some consistency rather than have a great idea for a podcast, make the podcast, put it out there, put one episode out there, and then have to keep up with the schedule because life gets in the way mm. and priorities yeah. can sometimes change. And I think if you're going to plan to do something that's significant do do a do a batch of of shows and then put them out and do all of the necessary prep with your identity and your point of view and your positioning and really approach it like you would any project for any client and take it really seriously yeah such good advice to have a bank of them is that how you generally operate with yours so do you always have, are you like always three ahead or 10 ahead or like how, how do you tem tend to do that? Definitely not 10 ahead, but I do try to have about four or five ahead. And yeah. that's something that I find to be really helpful, especially if you're working with other people whose schedules are often busy. My producer is not just my producer. He produces a lot of other podcasts. And so I, I need to make sure that we have the time to do what we need to do in a way that allows for me to also be able to do all the preparation I like to do for my interviews, because I don't just sit down and 
say to somebody, which is often what, what people do now, like, tell me about yourself. And they're like, I'm 60 years old. Yeah, right. You don't want me to talk about <laughs> my life for 60 years. So I'll try to make it really snappy, but I'm probably going to leave a lot of stuff out. Yeah, it's always that tension, isn't it? If I, I'm always probably about four or five ahead, but if you're only one or two ahead and then someone cancels or dates get wrong, then you've got a gap. But also if you're 10, 15 ahead or something, then it just feels so it feels so not fresh by the time you put those episodes out. So you've always got to kind of it's that like tension that you've got to ride down the middle. Yeah, there's that continuum of of feeling really new and interesting and then really on the edge of of when did I do that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what, what what did I talk about with them? You know, it was so long ago. Um, so um, Fast Company described you as one of the most create creative people working in business. Do you know that when that happened, I didn't even know that it happened. <laughs> I didn't. I, they, I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't hear from. I mean, and I love Fast Company. They're really great. It's a great magazine, a great site. I love working with the folks at Fast Company. But literally one day, I was on the site looking for an older article that I had written from like ten years prior. And so I did a search on the Fast Company site for my articles and that popped up and I'm like, hey, when did that happen? <laughs> if, it, if I had known it had happened, I would have sent out like a press release. <laughs> and I'm joking, I don't send out press releases, but I would have wanted to. Well, I got that, for, like your publisher for the book obviously picked up on that. But I, I wonder how, if you went around the internet and, and kind of, Googled, you, you could probably find loads more quotes like that, right? If they're all just like hidden away. Well, then I'd also come upon the bad reviews, so I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but oh no, now I, now it's like on my, it's the first line of my bio. I'm, I'm like really milking yeah, right. that, that designation. Believe me. <laughs> um, but you do have this, you know, really incredible um, career. So you ran Sterling Brands for for a good period of time, and I love the thing that you say in the book where you talk about. Um, at one point, you could have walked into the store and like 25% of the brands on the shelf are things that you've worked on, things that you've designed. Um, so you've just got this real, like what's quite interesting as I was reading reading that part of the book, it made me think that so often, and maybe it's partly because I'm in the UK and you're in the US and like a lot of the brands that we have are US brands, you know, it's Starbucks and Burger King and like all these big US brands. They all feel to me like, quite far away and quite exotic and then you're there actually working on them and actually shaping this kind of stuff so you're you're at that you've been at that coal face in terms of how branding works and stuff so just wanted to start you know exploring that a little bit and I suppose the first question I've got is when did you first get interested in the idea of brands and, and logos and like kind of telling a story through brands and logos there's sort of the professional interest that happened quite by accident. And then there's what I I guess I could call the longing that started when I was a very little girl. And my dad was a pharmacist and he had his own pharmacy. And he was a sort of mom and he had a mom and pop pharmacy. And when I was very little, my mother would take my brother and I to go visit him at the store. And I was enthralled by all of the, what I consider to be jewels in, in the pharmacy, mm. the, the barrette and, and hair accessories uh, spinner where all of the goody ponytail holders were shining and very beautifully tinted. And I just looked at those things and I, I don't know if it was because I just sort of grew up feeling kind of 
less than or with low self-esteem, but I looked at those things and thought, these are the things that can make me beautiful. These are the things that can make me feel pretty. And so the skin creams and the hair accessories, all of these things I coveted and literally collected and, and looked at longingly with, with such reverence, almost as if they were magical amulets. Um, and then as I got older, those things that, that love transferred to very typical things for a teenager, things like Levi's jeans and Lacoste uh, polo shirts. I grew up in the 70s, so those were really, really important to me. And unfortunately, at the time, um, they were well out of my family's financial purview. My parents had gotten divorced. My mm, mom didn't have a right. lot of money. She was a seamstress. She didn't understand why those clothing products were more expensive than dungarees, as we referred to them then, without the little tag in the pocket and without the the little alligator on the on the breastplate like those things she didn't understand she was like well you know we can go to the craft store and i can find you like little little um emblems that i can sew on your shirt myself and i'm like mom not only is that bad but that's actually worse than not having it yeah it's worse <laughs> she did not understand but i do remember one point as a teenager riding my bike up to the craft store to see if i could find an alligator that i could indeed like iron on to my polo shirt alas you know there were just things like tony the tiger and whatnot which you know wasn't the look i was going for but i do i do have a photograph by the time i think i got to be a senior in in call in high school you know, saved up all my babysitting money and, and had a one pair of Levi's and one Lacoste shirt. And I am posing by my friend's house and feeling very, very posh, you know, very glamorous that I had somehow arrived as one of the cool kids. When in fact it was, I wasn't, I never was, but it made me feel in that moment like I was part of some elite group that I would not otherwise have had entry to. So I think that's really when it all began psychologically. And then yeah. as a professional, it was really quite by accident that I got headhunted into a branding consultancy from a design firm as a salesperson. And because I think of all of the power that brands had in my early life, I was very e able, easily able to sell programs to clients for the agency that I was working at, first into brand and then Sterling. And and that really became my path to um, leadership at Sterling through sales. And so some of the things that you've worked on, you know, Star Wars, Seven Up, Burger King, all of these these, you know, huge names. Is there any that stand out to you as particularly significant in terms of you changing what that represented to people or having an input in terms of making it represent something slightly different to what it did before. I certainly think that, that the work that Sterling did on Tropicana is is iconic. It's still the same package we designed 20 years ago. Um, the straw and orange, and when that was taken away for a very brief period of time, people were just outraged, and so much so that, the, the, that PepsiCo brought it back. That's certainly something that I feel really good about. The Star Wars work is is not so much that I think it, it changed culture or moved the needle in any way, but now that my nephew, my 14-year-old nephew, is obsessed with Star Wars and superheroes and Marvel and collects the figurines, the fact that he hmm. has a package that I created 
more than 20 years ago in his room as a collectible is also something that gives me enormous joy and enormous pride. Um, and, And a lot of the work that we did has has really stood the test of time. I mean, Burger King was just changed by Jones Knowles Ritchie and was was magnificently led by Tosh Hall. But it lasted for quite a long time, as logos go. It, it was over two decades. And we changed it at a time the brand was really suffering. Um, it was the late 90s. And we needed to create a shinier more modern look for Burger King. And so that's why the gradients were there. That's why the swoosh device was there. Uh, it was very of the moment and then lasted for well longer than that moment until very recently when it was just updated again. And ironically went back to a lot of the brand equity that it had prior. So sort of an interesting journey, but there's still lots and lots of logos and brands that that still borrow from the brand equity that we developed and created. And I, I feel really proud of that body of work. I'm just picturing you, particularly that Tropicana one, when they go to change it and there's a big outcry and you're thinking, well, that's that's my baby. Everyone's defending my baby. That's a, that's a really special thing professionally, right? It was. And we knew that it was changing. We had worked very, very hard to get that package that was in the market, the straw and the orange package, um, for quite a long time. And it was, I don't even know that it was necessarily on the market for as long as it took for us to make it and and go through all the, the necessary market research and, and so forth. And then we heard that there was a new package coming. It was being managed by very senior people at PepsiCo, not the the then uh, design group at Pepsi. And so we knew that it was happening, but we didn't know what it was going to look like. And there was very little, if none, very little or no market research done at the time. So I was really jealous about that. I'm like, oh my God, they're bringing this to market without consumer verification. And I was like, how did they, how did the, how did the firm manage to convince Pepsi to not do market research? That's really what I was most envious of. And then when it came to market, I actually thought it was a really beautiful package. I think that Arnell did a nice job. I think the problem was there was no launch strategy to communicate to consumers why it was changing and what it was now going to be standing for and and what it represented. And, you know, at the time, I remember talking to Paula Cher, who, who always tells the truth. You know, Paula is a truth teller. She says what she means. She means what she says. And we had a long talk about it. And she said, I actually think it's really bad for graphic design and branding that this is happening. And it was not the response I was expecting. I thought she was going to give me high fives for having a package that people clamored to get back. And she said, I think it's just going to make it more difficult for corporations to feel that they can do really revolutionary work without big ramifications. And they're gonna be much more tentative to stay very close in. And she was right. Now people say, oh, I don't wanna do a Tropicana with the package. And and she was, you know, as usual, she was right about that. Yeah, it's those like really famous, you know, rebrands or, you know, the times where they've changed the formulation of what goes into Coke or Pepsi or something like, and there's a huge outcry. And then you realize that, the corporation doesn't actually own the brand like it's 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 kind of owned by everybody everybody has an investment in it don't they in terms of what they think the story is and you talk about that in your your ted talk as well which i, I took this line out of your ted talk which i just thought was really interesting i'd love you to um maybe just speak a little bit to it but you said 
Branding is the profound manifestation of the human spirit. And I just really love that. I'd love you to just talk, talk a bit more about that. Very, very controversial line. <laughs> well, I think that if you look back at our time here as modern humans, we have been mark making for almost the entire time. We started first by communicating our reality and, and expressing our reality on the cave walls of Lascaux. And now we're finding even older caves that have even older mark making. Um, it's, it's a behavior that's really almost as old as we are. And from there, you can see a very distinct evolution of our mark making from first communicating on cave walls and then slowly over time, moving to creating marks to signify our relationship to a higher power, which we refer to as religion and, and God. And the interesting thing is that many of these marks were created around the same time, but all mm. over the planet. You know, we, we weren't... Yeah, Com and completely independently yeah, of each and, other. And yeah. so a lot of our more ancient religions were, were created in the 10,000 year ago range. And they all, you know, we all have marks. We all worship in an environment. Uh, we have rules and regulations about how to behave. From there, we went to developing flags, to developing family crests, and then to developing sort of the ultimate, I think, expression of, of a um, product, which is its label, <laughs> you know, label. I mean, just think of that word, the mm. label, yeah. we label things and the yeah. corporation really appropriated that behavior that was first created by humans for humans for free. And then suddenly the corporation appropriated that behavior to be able to create recognition and consensus among people that were participating in the brand, either by buying it or experiencing it, using it, wearing it, etc. It's only in the last 10 years that we've begun to wrestle that power back in the creation of movements. And so people once again are creating marks by people, for people now, for the sheer purpose, the, the sort of single-minded purpose of changing behavior, changing the world. So Black Lives Matter, Me Too, they all use the tenets of branding in the same way that we corporate people have been using for the last couple of hundred years, but are now doing it not for a return on an investment financially or market share position or shelf presence, but really to change behavior. And so branding is a behavior that's really as old as we are. Whether or not it's used as a capitalist tool is a decision that we also make. And so on its best day, we can use the tenets of branding to change behavior that can change the world. And that is what I mean by that statement. And that thing that you talk about, so Brent, so you talk about Black Lives Matter and um, uh, the Women's March you talked about as well, where it's like those things are bottom up rather than top down, right? So there's the corporate brands are generally top down, but a lot of the most exciting stuff that you're seeing is is the stuff that's bottom up. Yes. And, you know, these are brands, but they're well more than brands too. They're movements. And you can have a branded product, but you also, in order for a movement to succeed, there needs to be a consensus around understanding what it means, why it's existing, what the purpose of it is, all of these things. Branding gets a bad rap because people think that it's just for capitalist reasons. It's just used to make money. But really what it's mm, used for is yeah. to influence behavior. 
or to express behavior and beliefs. Yeah. Brands signify yeah. our affiliations. They telegraph our beliefs. And, and so whether or not we use them for making money or we use them for making change is our decision. I wanted to come back to the, the sort of morality thing in a minute. I wanted to ask you about Milton Glaser's list in a second. But just before we do that, so I, I sort of tend to think that maybe one of the reasons branding gets a bad rap is that when I think of branding, I just makes me feel a bit tired because there's so many brands competing for our attention. Is that something that you see as problematic? And do you like, do you think there's, you know, some kind of movement in terms of corporations looking at that and saying, how do we, how do we, because that's almost like damaging to corporations too, right? Like fighting for that space and it feeling like everyone's inundated when they leave the house just with thousands of logos. Do you, do you think there's there's change happening in, the, no. in that kind of space? <laughs> no, I don't. No? <laughs> no, I don't. Just because the commercial pressure means it's too difficult well, to change. There's innovation and then there is iteration. And innovation is about creating something new and iteration is about creating something based on something else. And innovation is really hard. And a lot of companies are, are buying brands because they, because the, the path to the market is, is so fraught that rather than create something from nothing, they're buying other brands and then building on them. But we're also, you know, the brand extensions exist for that purpose to be able to continue to iterate because innovation is so hard. You know, there are, I think, 112 variations of Oreos since they were originated. Now, is that a good right. thing or a bad thing? Yeah. It depends on how much you like Oreos, I guess. You know, all of these things are decisions we make. And if consumers don't buy, literally, figuratively, into the product, it's not made. Companies aren't making these things altruistically and thinking, you know what? We love this product so much. We are just going to wait for people to discover how amazing it is. We're going to keep on funding this. We're going to keep on paying the slotting fees. We're going to keep on bringing out advertising and working on the website and social media. And eventually people are going to realize how amazing it is. And then they're going to buy it. That doesn't ever happen ever, ever. People only, corporations only make what people, they think people are going to buy and what people end up buying. And if they don't, usually within six months or so, boop, off the market. So let's talk about that, the morality thing of brands. I, one of the things I loved in the book, so um, the book has all of these like Q&A interviews and beautiful photography. And I guess if it's a book called Why Design Matters, it has to look beautiful and it does. So Milton Glaser, <laughs> who's a, a bit of a, a guru um designer in his time and i think he did he do the he i love new york symbol yes. was that his thing and and various other things and he had this list of here are the things that designers should never do which i just thought was it was just a really nice way of sort of encapsulating i guess the morality that we all have not just designers but that we all have when we when we're sort of participating in in capitalism and 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 in work you know um do you want to just talk about that list well i think yeah, I don't think it was so much a list of what we shouldn't do. It was a list of things that we're sometimes asked to do and how willing are we to do them. So I think it's I think it's either the 10 steps or the 12 steps to hell. I think it's 12 steps on the road to hell. And it starts out very innocuously, like, you know, make make the logo bigger or make the, the wine look like it's got 
history behind it, you know, things that, that we kind of all do, leading all the way up to working on something that causes someone harm. So one of them was like, use use the metal from um, the World Trade Center to make a medal that commemorates 9-11 for a, for a profit. And then it goes down into like uh, doing the marketing for an SUV that is about to, that they know has been tested that it will just, you know, it will collapse and fall off the road and injure people and stuff like that. So it's kind of like this list of like, yeah, where do you, where stop, do you stop on that where, list, where's, where's the place for you? Yeah. Where's that defining yeah. line? And when it first came out, it was really quite provocative because, you know, everybody has their different line. And then there are some people that are quite comfortable working on firearms or quite comfortable working on um, cigarettes, tobacco, uh, alcohol. You know, some people will say, well, if you won't work on tobacco, why are you working on alcohol? So, you know, there's a lot of questions necessary questions to ask oneself about choice making decision making and what you're willing and not willing to do how do you view that personally you know it depends on the time of my life when i was when i had when i had my business and had 150 people to make sure got their paychecks every every week and was also a smoker working on cigarettes at the time kind of felt exciting you know, I was working on, and this was in the, I want to say the 90s. This was in the 90s. Um, I didn't feel particularly bad about it, but now I'm ashamed of it, really ashamed of it, and wish that I hadn't done it. But also at the time, again, I was a smoker, and I was yeah. working on products that I smoked, and I also was in a position where we needed the money. So was it a decision I regret? Yes. Would I have done it differently at that moment in time? Not sure. Would I do it now? Never. So people change, ideas change. Certain things I, I never was tempted to do. I was never, I would never have worked on firearms, but I was never offered an opportunity to but I wouldn't have. I would never have worked for a pro-choice movement. I would never have worked for a candidate I didn't believe in. So there are certain things that are very black and white to me and then other things that were a bit squishier. Yeah, and I've had similar ones myself where there's definitely things that, I've, that I'm proud of decisions I took at the time. Um, and one of them in particular was about... Um, do you guys have payday yes. loans? Yes, we yeah, do. do. Horrible, that, horrible that, things. Yeah, so... So the idea is, yeah, so very high interest rates and if you miss it by a day and they're typically aimed at people who can't afford a regular bank loan or don't have the credit to get a regular bank loan. And I turned that down and I also turned down a tobacco thing when we had no money in the business and it was like, it would have been very easy to say yes to. But then there's also ones like, you know, I mean, I, I drink and I've and I've had clients um, with my business that are alcohol companies that at the time it felt really cool to be going into these offices that have, you know, big long bars. And it's like, wow, like we can uh, drink in the office. And then I guess as I've gone through life and had a couple of friends who've been very, you know, become very alcohol dependent and have had, you know, big crises in their lives through alcohol and stuff. It's like, is that did I do the right thing? You know, so I think that's it's really interesting what you say there that um, some of that morality is in the gray area and it's squishy, isn't it? And it's and it's and it's like 
you it does change as you as as you go through life and it kind of feels like the feels like online culture doesn't really allow for um for that complexity yeah i mean the one thing i can look back on and say that i'm glad i did was give people the opt out when we were working on on the product we never forced anybody to do it so if there was anybody at the company that felt that it was wrong to do we didn't it, we didn't expect anybody to to do it if they didn't want to and there were people that didn't want to they still got paid <laughs> so but but still you know i stopped smoking my views on 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 smoking changed and ultimately don't want to participate in something that causes so much harm the other one i wanted to talk to you about from the book was um was the tim ferris thing about fear um so so just tell me a bit more about that. So he's been on your podcast, you've been on his podcast, and um, it, yeah, it feels like you do have this very open dialogue when the when the two of you are talking. And we'll put the links to those episodes in in our show notes so people can go and um, check it out. But um, yeah, like, how would you describe your relationship with Tim and and um, the conversations that you have? Well, Tim described our relationship in in the uh, introduction he wrote in the book as. Um, I'm his sister from another mister. So I guess I would say the same thing. He's my brother from another mother. Um, we're, we're sort of, we feel like siblings. We do feel very connected, um, sort of deep in our souls with lots of similar experiences that we've gone through as well as lots of similar ambitions and ways in which we've coped and also very different ways. But for whatever reason, we've always sort of, nudged into each other's hearts when we've had our our interviews and it started that way you know he he came on my podcast first then I went on his then he came back on mine again and then I went on his again and every time we discover something new about ourselves in those conversations not just finding connection mm, in each other but yeah. also learning and growing you know the first time I was on his show when he asked me about my work with the Joyful Heart Foundation and why I said publicly on this site that that work made my life make sense. No one had ever asked me that before. I hadn't been public with a lot of my early childhood trauma. And suddenly there I'm talking to the most popular podcaster in the world, being asked yeah. by about something so personal that I had to sort of fall into that, that moment with open arms and an open heart and really talk about things that I'd never talked about publicly before. And it was, again, one of the great gifts of my life, being able to suddenly have that freedom to share in a way that felt safe and important and necessary. And that was a great conversation. And it, it you know, one of the things I could say, listen to it, is it, it sounded like you'd, it sounded like you'd talked about it hundreds of times before, like just the eloquence that you had with um, that conversation, which I guess is one of the real sort of gifts of, you know, like your chemistry with him and like that interview, but also podcasting as a whole, it like has this very um, sort of in, like it's an intimate medium in many ways, isn't it? Even if, even though you know it's going to go out publicly at the time, it's just the two of you, you know, going back and forth and connecting in that way. Right. And, and especially when we're in my studio, because it's very dark and pre COVID, I was doing all my interviews live. And so we're sitting three feet apart, sort of staring into each other's eyes and just, having this very intimate experience, not sexual in any way, but just a very intimate, close 
almost symbiotic relationship in that in that moment yeah it's amazing um I wanted to uh, talk to you about so one of the things he um, has talked to you about in that interview is that you were the victim of you were one of the first victims of an internet pylon <laughs> back in 2003 yes <laughs> so the background to this is um uh it, it's the website called stand up or speak up it was now i mean armin Witt founded it in i think 2002 and it ran for, I think, about 10 years. And now he has another site that's even more popular called Brand New. And so this was because you were the, you you were a judge um, for a big design award. And some people on, so this was one of the really early internet forums. They kind of took exception for the fact that you were the, like the big kind of corporate person that done all this, you know, famous corporate work and that you were in this, uh sort of position as as the judge and they kind of took umbrage to that and it became a very personal thing do you want to do you want to tell the story from there well i had been the the backstory is is so interesting at least to me (laughs) i had been um part of aiga's brand experience group prior to being asked to be a judge and that was i think in like 98 99 2000 around then and and I love doing it. And I was on the board of this little brand experience group within AIGA, which is the AIGA stood for the American Institute of Graphic Arts. And now it's AIGA, the Professional okay. Association for Design. And and I love being part of this little group. And when my term was over, I reapplied, as did everybody else on the board at the time. And I was the only one that that didn't get asked to re-up my my boardmanship. And I felt very rejected and very kicked to the curb. And the then executive director of AIGA, um, I think as a consolation prize and to try to keep me encouraged about being involved with the organization, he asked if I would be a judge in this upcoming annual competition, which was very, is, was very prestigious. And I was, hadn't ever been asked to do something like that before. And I was so thrilled and so excited. When I did the judging, I was judging with two very well-known designers that felt that any package design could never, ever, ever win an award in the competition, that it was just too mass market, too ugly. We were judging the packaging design competition. And so it's kind of hard to eliminate like everything that's a mass market packaged good. And there were some nice ones, but it was a very cantankerous experience. I think we all agreed at the end of the day on only seven things that would make it into the annual, which is not what AIGA wanted. They wanted way right. more. And so I left that day at AIGA headquarters thinking, oh, I'm you know, never, ever going to be part of AIGA again. And then several, I don't know if it was a year later or a month later, it's really hard for me to remember the specific timing of when I judged. And I think it, maybe it was about a year or so later when the annual came out. Um, the people on Speak Up, the, the sort of renegade rogue writers, the anti-establishment designers that were very critical of AIGA saw the association that they had with me, who they thought was a corporate clown, and really just, they wrote an open letter to AIGA about their association with me and how they could be involved with somebody like me that they refer to as a she-devil. <laughs> I can laugh about it 20 years later, but at I the mean, time so, I was mortified yeah. and horrified yeah. and was really worried that I was going to get fired from my job when people saw that I was being sort of, a, that I was the head of Sterling's design division and 
now being called this corporate clown and the she devil and it took me a while to figure out what to do. I didn't I didn't want anybody at my office to know. People weren't reading blogs back then very much. This was a very small group of people, but it did feel like it went viral online. And then I ended up writing in and they were still very, very critical and ultimately just sort of put my tail between my legs and walked away. I was still really, really, really hurt about it. They wrote another article about me asking if the dark side was prevailing as if I was Darth Vader, you know? And and then a couple of weeks after that, Armin wrote to me and apologized for the bullying. And, and it was interesting. He didn't want to take back the fact that he thought my work was what he referred to online as a pair of turds. And he was talking about Burger King and Star Wars. But right. but he felt bad that, that I had right. been treated the way that I had. And I wrote him back and I said, you know, I accept your apology. Thank you. Um, but, you know, you have this really interesting forum here. People are holding people accountable in real time, having these really robust conversations about design. You know, this could be better. This could be this could be really significant. And he wrote me back and said, well, would you like to write for the site? And I was like, sure. And I did. And that moment while the bullying and, and the sort of being, I guess, attacked like that was so painful and so hurtful at the time. It became the entry point for every single thing that then happened thereafter in terms of my writing for Speak Up, which turned into my opportunity with Voice America, which turned into an opportunity with Print Magazine, which turned into my meeting Milton Glaser, which turned into like every single thing I'm doing now. And so the worst moment of my professional life really turned into the most significant. And, and I think that's important for people to hear because you don't always know how the story is going to end when you're in the middle of it. And while I, at the time, would have wished anything else could have happened, anything else, the fact that it happened now, I, I wouldn't have changed even a moment of it because it turned into every aspect of my life today. feels like there's a really important lesson in all of that around fear and and kind of, you know, looking at some of those situations where you can have these fears that, you know, my career is about to end and all these things are going wrong. But yeah, I thought I was going to get fired from my job, that I was going to be just completely banished. And at the time, it felt like I was the most hated person in the in, in American graphic design. The AIGA people, the establishment hated me. I had been kicked to the curb. The, the speak uppers didn't know that. They just saw that this association existed. They didn't know that I was really un, very unceremoniously just discarded. And then now the anti-establishment mm. hated me too. So I just felt like the most hated person in American graphic design. <laughs> but it's like that thing, isn't it? Where if you if you can look beyond that kind of lizard brain sort of fear-based thinking and actually just say, what I'm doing is I'm making connections and putting one step in front of the other. And actually, you know, I'm making some progress on some stuff here, even if not everybody loves it, the people who are drawn to your work will find you. And, and you know, like, it's amazing how much we just don't do because we put up that barrier of the fear of judgment, right? And the fear of being um, taken down. Absolutely. And then I ended up being, I then Emily Oberman, who was then the, president of the New York chapter of AIGA invited me to be on the board of New York chapter, which I did for several years. Then Sean Adams invited me to be on the national board. And then I ended up being the president of the national board, which was president of the entire, the entire organization. 
and then ended up in, in 2019, so 16 years later, winning the AIGA Lifetime Achievement Award. So it's surreal. It's surreal. And, and, and <laughs> let me tell you the most magnificent thing about this is that I am the godmother to Armin's oldest child. Okay. So that's how close Armin and I are now. It's amazing. Bryony is the reason, Bryony is, is Armin's wife, the co-founder of Speak Up. She's the reason I ultimately first uploaded my digital files from Voice America to iTunes because she didn't want to listen to it live. It was too hard for her with, you know, little kids and life and just like, put it up on iTunes so I can just listen to it whenever I want. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. And so that's why it became a podcast. That's well, and also that's such a lovely sort of um, bring us back to where we started the conversation around the podcast as well. Um, I wanted to just ask you one other thing before I let you go, which is I was just explaining to you before we hit record that I'm working on this book about kindness and your eyes lit up. Um, so I would just love to just talk to you about kindness and what does kindness mean to you in terms of work and leadership? I think it means a generosity of spirit. And it's very, very, very important to me to be kind. And as generous as I possibly can be. I don't know if it's because I wasn't treated with kindness when I was growing up, but I find kindness to be next to love in terms of importance. And I'll go back to something Milton Glaser said to me in 2005 when I, I took a, a class with him at the School of Visual Arts long before I was teaching there. And he said that you can see the world in one of two ways. You can see the world as a world of scarcity where you have to hold on to everything you have because there's so little of it. Or you can see the world as one of abundance where there's enough for everybody if we share. And that has been my sort of creed for since then. There's enough for everybody. Share what you can and, and then give away what you don't need. And, and that's something that I find to be really important. And do you, like like you were saying earlier about the not having the Levi's and sounds like we had very similar childhoods in, in that way too. And like the parents, uh, you know, knitting the alternatives and whatever. Has that changed for you over time? And was there was there a moment where you, you flipped from scarcity into abundance or just kind of saw that in a different way? When I graduated college, the lead gene for me was self-sufficiency. I needed to be able to support myself because I didn't want to go back to either my mother's house or my father's house. And I wanted very much to be self-sufficient. What you find over time is when you think you've reached the financial goal, you know, what's your number and you get it, you realize, oh no, this, I need more. I need more because we metabolize everything very quickly. And if we're using these external markers to signify safety and security, and we don't feel that internally, there's nothing that's ever going to be able to fill you up. And so that's something that I've, I've learned in terms of what you think you need to be safe and what you think you need to be secure. Um, as far as brands and using brands to give me social cachet, 
sure. You know, there are times when I feel like, oh, that pair of shoes or that whatever will make me feel prettier. But it doesn't last. And I know that, you know, as Dan Pink would say, <laughs> if your idea of success is yeah, a, yeah. A, the biggest possible flat screen TV in existence, you're playing a fool's game because you'll metabolize that TV really quickly and then want another one. You know, for everybody that was satisfied with the promotion to vice president, how long did it take before they started thinking about when they could be senior vice president or president? You know, and I've been through all of that. So I know that while before we achieve or receive or acquire these things, it might feel like that's enough. But when we do, if it's not based on a strong inner foundation, it's never going to be enough. So I look at those experiences now and when I'm tempted to whatever it is I want or think I need in order to be this or that, I know that it's fleeting. Absolutely, which is about the most perfect beyond busy encapsulation um, that we can reach. So um, just before we finish, where do people, like where can people follow you online? Um, the book is Why Design Matters and um, obviously we encourage everyone to get out there and like buy it in printed form because it's like it's it's just more beautiful that way um it's just a really beautifully designed book but where do you hang out online where where can people connect with you and find out more about what you're up to uh well instagram twitter at debbie millman i have a design matters facebook page which i post on um and then debbiemillman.com and from there you can get to the podcast and also now the book amazing thank you so much for being with us grant thank you for a wonderful conversation thank you thank you thank you so there you go, Debbie Millman. Just really enjoyed talking to Debbie and just so interesting how many exciting people, exciting brands, like exciting stories she's just been around over the course of her career. Just someone who has the knack for getting to know the right people, for being in the right places and for working on really interesting stuff. So yeah, really um, grateful to Debbie for spending some time with us and being on the show. And I'm recording this little outro just after having finished the Brighton Half Marathon so if you're in Brighton in the UK then um, shout out if you were running in the Brighton Half Marathon it's one of those ones I do I do most years and uh, I have to say because I was in a book deadline in a bit of a hole uh, through January and most of February I basically just didn't really have much time to train so I ended up running it having not done enough long runs and if you're a runner you'll know that that means pain so even though it's only a half I feel like I ran a full marathon yesterday and um, my knee is uh, seriously sore so <laughs> sat here with a hot water bottle on my knee and uh, feeling a bit like an old man but yeah really grateful to get out and um, finish the race in a decent time yesterday as well so as always um, just want to mention that this podcast is sponsored by my company Think Productive and we have a whole range of training workshops and coaching to really help your people to do their best work our work goes way beyond just looking at productivity and getting your inbox to zero and all the stuff that's in my book how to be a productivity ninja so we've got stuff around management leadership project management a whole load of stuff around helping hybrid teams as well so if that's at all of interest then go to thinkproductive.com and from there you'll be able to find your nearest office we've got offices all over the world and we'll be able to get back to you and help you to book something in so just head to thinkproductive.com to find out more um, as always if you want to keep in touch with me the best place is grahamalcott.com forward slash links that will tell you everything that I've got going on and show you what I'm up to right now. And if you're not signed up, I've got a mailing list where every Sunday I send out a positive or productive 
email for the week ahead. And you can sign up for that at the same link. So graymalcott.com forward slash links and you'll see the thing to sign up. And there's also just forms on every page of graymalcott.com to sign up for my rev up for the week email. So that's about it for this week. We're going to be back in two weeks time for another episode. We've got some really good ones that are in the can and coming up, not least the next couple I think you're going to really love. So really excited to share some more episodes with you over the next couple of weeks. And until then, take care. Bye for now.